You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone, and I'm joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harold, today as we continue with these conversations over the Apostles' Creed. The past several weeks, we've been going over what the opening lines of the Creed say, speaking of God as our Father. Today, we're going to transition into hearing about who Jesus is as our Savior and Lord. As you listen to these podcasts, we'd love it if you would join in the conversation with us. If you have any questions, feedback, or anything that you'd like us to discuss, we would love the opportunity to respond to those. So if you could text your feedback to 817-809-3040, we would love to hear from you. Again, these podcasts and all of our Sunday sermons that go along with this series are available on our website at cbc.family media. So you can see we're at the beginning of a new section. Remember, it's a Trinitarian statement. Right. So we just got done discussing God as our father, which was a great discussion. I love right. speaking about that because the Holy Spirit isn't really referenced much as far as publicly in our Baptist circles. We kind of shy away from talking about him for whatever reason. But I think God the Father is even more mysterious because we spend so much time talking about well, Jesus. He's the, he's the God of the Old Testament. And, it's like, and we're very progressive, modern contemporary people now on yeah. post-resurrection and it's jesus 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 yeah for our tradition right and i think some people are almost scared of bringing up god the father because then you have to get into some old testament judgmental things and they have a hard time reconciling how god revealed himself in those times versus how he revealed himself through christ okay so, so people just don't talk about god as father often which so ties we talked into about it. exactly what we taught because of the platonism again right and the idea of trying to understand you know the heaven and the earth and the relationship between the old testament and the new there emerged a school of thought mm -hmm. that was exactly what you articulated that this god of the old testament this creator god seems to be a little more serious mean angry even. yeah strict a little more of an enforcer more on the judgment side yeah i will judge the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation that yeah. sounds very ominous right and so there was some emerging philosophy this was marcion's dualism that old testament god that created was a god a god and he was really kind of snarky i mean <laughs> angry yeah but then clearly, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. And if that son is a representation of the father, if Jesus is a representation of that God, he must be an awesome God because Jesus was kind and compassionate and loving and caring and he loved the poor and he wept over the lost and he's everything you want a savior to be. So that God must be a different God. So it's kind of a dualism that Marcion taught and all the early church fathers condemned him as a heretic and said, no, it's not two gods. You have to remember now, I'm going to hearken back to previous podcasts and messages in this series. God is both and, and, yeah. and as long as you file that away, we're going to say it as often as we can to get that into our subconscious, if you would, God is both and, and when Moses said, reveal yourself, I just want to know you, God, yeah. he had a heart longing a passion to know god yeah i've spoken with you through the burning bush right but i know that burning bush is not you you're using that as a symbol to get my attention and i've spoken to you in the cloud and on the mountain but i know you are transcendent to those things mm -hmm. you're just speaking through these 
physical things that could get my attention. I know you're there Mm -hmm. and I know you're more than a burning bush or a lightning bolt or an earthquake. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. And it seems that we don't have language to wrap our brain really around this. I'll try. Okay. And this is not adequate. I get (laughs) it. But God is pure energy. He is pure God. He is an existence of pure holiness to be in his presence would vaporize you. And he tells Moses, Moses, I want to satisfy your yearning to know me. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. This spawned to him in the old days. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Yeah. And so he told Moses, get in the cleft of the rock, get in this crevasse, mm-hmm. snuggle up in there a minute, <laughs> and I'm going to put my hand over you, and then I'm going to pass before you, put your hand over your face and just peek between your fingers. Yeah. It's that kind of language you're reading that God said, I'm going to pass by like a comet. Right. Just peek at my glory. Wow. And just get a glimpse. Don't look at me full on, you'll burn your retinas out, but just <laughs> right. get a glimpse. Right. right. You know, here's some sunglasses kind of thing. And God says, I want to reveal myself. Yahweh, Yahweh, I'm kind and gracious and merciful and loving and long suffering. And oh my goodness, if you knew how many sins I have forgiven, you would be shocked. But I am also God of judgment. I will, I will judge the sins. And to see God as he's revealed himself in the Old Testament as only judgmental and harsh. And that's not fair. That's not a fair reading. No. Because he revealed his loving kindness and his mercy and his grace all throughout time. That is the overview of the whole story. Right. What are you really reading about? You're reading about a God who loved his creation so much Mm -hmm. that he said, I will not let it go into judgment. I will rescue it. And so when people think, well, God's a God who, oh, here he is judging sin. Mm -hmm. No, listen, God gave us a savior. Right. To reject the savior is your choice. People often say, well, God's sending people to hell or to judgment. No, wait a minute. God gave you a savior yeah. and said, please, please don't fall onto the side of my judgment. Yeah. I'm going to do everything I can to be the loving, kind, yeah. merciful God to you. Yeah. The word says that he is not willing that any should suffer, but that everyone would come, come to, to a repentant knowledge that's of correct. the savior. Absolutely. That's correct. Yeah. Well, that's actually a wonderful transition then. Like you, like you said, the creed is based in a Trinitarian statement. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now we come to the Son portion. Su- Sunday, you transitioned away from talking about the Father. We did a wonderful, comprehensive view of those opening lines. Now we're switching to Jesus Christ, the I Son. B- I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. Exactly. So there's a question that came in after you'd given your sermon on Sunday, where someone's referencing the clause in that his only, his only son. son. So let yes. me read the whole creed and then I'll ask the question. Okay. okay. Well, I'll read those opening lines sure. of the creed at least. Sure. I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So the question says this, I've read in the Bible that we are also sons of God. So is Jesus God's only son or is he not? Which is really a great question, a great because, question. because I have to think about, you know, John 1.14, it says that he's the one and only son. John 3.16, he gave his one and only son. Correct. So I understand where this question is coming from. It's valid because that is that's then, question. you know, paralleled against other verses where we are called the children of God. Do you want to elaborate on this? Yeah. So this is a great question, but I need to go to several different scriptures to unpack the answer. And you just alluded to two of John's references to only son or only begotten son. So let me just read John 1, 14. 
The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John 3.16 is better known. That's probably the most memorized verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now Mm -hmm. you contrast those scriptures that are saying clearly, Jesus is God's one and only son. Yeah. To scriptures like Galatians chapter 4. This is written to the European now Christians. And here's what Paul told them. Because you are his sons... This is Galatians 4, 6. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Another verse like that would be found in the Hebrews 2 passage. Yeah, it's a great example. There's a running several verses where the writer of Hebrews is referring to we who believe by faith as children of God. Let me read some of this language to Mm -hmm. you. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Sons and daughters of who? God. Okay. And I love this too, because the modern Bibles have realized that the old Bibles were a little gender hostile to our sisters in Christ. And the older Bibles are using sons. And really the intent of scripture isn't males. Right. It really means children, you know, sons and daughters. And I love that the new Bibles have fixed this. And again, as a male, maybe I'm desensitized to it maybe because... I always read, I'm a son of God, I'm a son of God, I'm a son of God. It's inconsequential to you. Inconsequential, that's the right way to say it. But I can imagine now looking back for our wives and our sisters and our mothers and our extended church family that's female, it must always give you pause to read, well, the boys get in, look, (laughs) they're God's sons. Hello, I guess we're just sitting out here on the edge. So I'm glad this is fixed. But here's the way it reads. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So Jesus was made perfect through suffering, Mm -hmm. both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, now it's going to reference us, are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, which is a great verse. Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Yeah. So this is a great passage because it's a very family. And again, it's the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And the Old Testament is very much about being a part of family. The family. Abraham's yeah. family, Jacob's family, Israel's family. So let me just ease into the New Testament here. In the New Testament, Paul is writing all through the New Testament that we're no longer Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Mm -hmm. male. We're all one in Christ. It's a very Galatian subject to the European Christians. And so you are the new Israel. Israel is not someone who is circumcised according to the flesh. Israel is someone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are the new Israel is what the New Testament is teaching. We are the children of God. Like we would say in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, God's children, in the New Testament, we are God's children, God's sons and daughters. So now the question yeah, stands. So, yeah, exactly. Because then you've got a really great case for we are children of God. I am a son of God, so, but Jesus is his only son. So yeah, so clear that up, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so let's go back to the John passages for a minute. Let me make it even maybe a little muddier. I'm going to read them out of the old Bible, the 1611 version 
of Elizabethan English. And again, for hundreds of years, this was the Bible Mm -hmm. and scholarship has progressed. I mean, if you think transportation has progressed and electricity, lighting your home has progressed and everything's progressed at 1611, our Bible scholarship has as well. So now when I read these out of the ancient Bible, you'll feel the archaicness. Let me read it. John 1, 14 KJV. And the word was made flesh, reference to Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And begotten is kind of a weird word for me, because in what context, other than in biblical language, have you ever heard the word begotten? I haven't. No. No, no one uses this Until word. Until you read a genealogy, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, begat so-and-so begat, 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 so-and-so. Exactly. exactly. And so I know this word only because I think of, of the Bible. John three sixteen, his only begotten son. Okay. So John 1, 18 would be another reference. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten son. And then you reference John three sixteen. And this is the way I memorized it as a child. Yeah, me too. And you'll hear me from the platform. Yeah, you revert back to the I, way that you learned because it. Because yeah. it just shows you the power of memorizing scripture as a child. I was on a run there for years where I memorized about 16 verses every week. That's a lot. So there's a lot of Bible buried down in the depths of my mind. But when I start quoting a verse, it comes out of my mind and out of my heart in Elizabethan English. Right, but then you start using words like begotten. You and know, everybody's, everybody's looking at me like, begat, begotten. Yeah, what does that even mean no now idea. in a modern era? Yeah. So let me see if I can break that down. So the word only begotten, so it's two English words, or in the modern versions, one and only, mm-hmm. three English words, is supplied to us by one Greek word in the Greek manuscripts of the Bible. So the real word in question here is what does the word monogenes mean? It's a compound word, monogenes in the Greek. Mono is pretty much undisputed. It means only. Yeah. Soul. The single one. The and, only. Yeah. And this carries into so many root words in English. Sure. Monologue. Monologue. Mono, monopod. Monocycle. All these things. Yeah. So mono is a slam dunk. Nobody really disputes the definition of mono. It's the last part of the compound word in monogenes that they debate over. And all of the old Bibles used only begotten. The modern Bibles now, you'll see, all use the phrase one and only. And the reason for the shift in the modern Bibles is because scholarship has progressed a whole lot, Mm -hmm. just like transportation has and everything else, in 500 years. And so the more scholarship has revealed is that when the ancient scholars looked at this compound word, mono, everybody agrees, only, but the genes part, the scholars that wrote the old Bibles were using the wrong root word. They thought the root word was geneo, which means to begat. Begat is like father, to bring forth. Mm -hmm. And the modern scholarship, as it has advanced, what they realize is geneo, to bear, to begat, was the wrong root word from the compound word. Rather, monogenes, the genes form comes from the root genos, meaning kind. Okay. Okay, so, so now that's, yeah. I know that's confusing. Yeah, if you're you just listening. said a lot that really feels like it overlaps. If you were to like look at it on a piece of paper, it would make more sense just because you see so the differencing. So think about scientific classification. Yeah. You know how genus and species and that mm-hmm. kind of scientific language works? Yeah. So they were using the root word in the old days. They thought the root word of monogenes was begat. Yeah. To bring forth. Right. So then the word then would mean the one who was brought forth. Let me say it another way. If you look at all the modern Greek dictionaries that have the latest scholarship, they won't say begat or bring forth. Mm -hmm. They'll use a different word 
they'll use the word genos, mm-hmm. which means kind. Which would then put it in a more of a one of a kind or the one of its okay, own kind, right? Okay, now we're getting right? there. Yeah. So how did the old Bibles move from God's only begotten son and the modern Bibles all read God's one and only son? So I haven't quite got to the question yet but I'm giving the background to it. What the scholars realized is it wasn't referring to God's only begotten, brought forth or fathered son. Yeah. And again, I'm going to pause right here and say this. Remember when we taught about God, the Bible refers to God in masculine language. So then are we to think that God is masculine in the way that you and I are males? Not necessarily, no. No, he's just giving us language where we can comprehend father. Right. Loving, protector, caring, providing. He's giving us language. We can have some concept of who God is. Right. The maleness of God is not the issue here. And so to think of God as fathering the way you and I have fathered children yeah. is an incorrect thinking of this. And matter of fact, this really ties in. I heard a few years ago when the Me Too movement was at its full swing, when it really erupted into American culture mm-hmm. and it was just the news every night and every article and every headline was about the Me Too movement. I read an article somewhere about God and it was kind of a feminist perspective that was saying, and I don't say feminist in a bad way because everybody accuses me of being a feminist, so I don't use that word in a reckless way. Right. I'm just saying it was a little more of an extremist feminist viewpoint that sure. was being put forth that the Judeo-Christian society thinking had been warped because we were a Christian society and we actually had this male God who forced himself upon Mary in order to bring forth his son into the world. And it was a very twisted viewpoint, something I'd never heard before, but that there were actually people thinking that God had raped Mary in order to bring forth the Savior. Because I guess if you had those lenses on, again, you read the Bible through your worldview and you read the New Testament, these supernatural beings appear to Mary and say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus and God's ordained it. It comes across pretty forceful. Sure. I'll unpack this maybe a little more next week (laughs) and answer this because I'm making some tension right now. Yeah. But for us in general to think that God is having sexual relations with Mary is a complete misreading of what the scripture is saying. Yeah, yeah. That is not what happened. He is not forcing himself on Mary. And they realize that begotten here isn't really the right root word that we thought it was. The real root word of monogenes is one of a kind. So Jesus is God's one of a kind son. Which does make a difference. Oh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So when the modern Bibles are now translating his one and only son, you're like, oh, so we are sons of God, but he's like one of a kind son. Yeah, it's a set apart kind of Okay, so you're asking yourself then, so does this happen anywhere else in the Bible? Or is there any other language like this that validates what we're saying here on the podcast? Sure there is. Yeah. Because when the Bible's referring to Abraham's Isaac, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, and go to Mount Moriah. Well, wait, it's not his only son. Yeah, we know that. Ishmael is his firstborn through the handmaid Hagar. Right. So there's something happening here where God's saying, no, he's the unique son. Yeah. Because he's the child of promise to a hundred year old man and a 90 year old woman. And he's the one I worked a very unique, special 
miracle for. I worked a miracle in your life to He's bring the this. One of its kind. This is the miracle yeah. kid. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening in text. So now let me complicate things one step further because a member came to me anticipating this line, God's only son, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and was having a little interaction with me about the sons of God, air quotes, as mentioned other places in the Bible. So now let me add another layer. There is language in the Old Testament in particular where the phrase sons of God is a reference to non human beings. Fantastic. (laughs) So you're now like, oh my goodness, there's aliens out there called sons of God. Well, we don't know what they are really. Well, and you know that it's a tough thing because when you look at translations of this phrase, people translate it all over the place. So give me an example. So first of all, there's multiple references in the Old Testament to these sons of God, but what would be an example? Well, for example, Job chapter one, verse six, ESV calls them sons of God. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So ESV says sons of God. God's word translation also says sons of God. However, NIV now says the angels came to sing to God. Exactly. Now, NLT, the New Living Translation says the members of the heavenly court. Okay. So now this is divine counsel. So quotes language. Exactly. So when you look at translations of this particular phrase, you can tell that there's some uncertainty with the way that we're going to read and interpret it. Right. So several times in the book of Job, you get this sons of God language, and it harkens back to some things also that you are seeing in the book of Genesis. And while our information is limited, I've read whole books on this subject Mm -hmm. just from a few verses. They've written whole books of some's conjecture, and I don't want to go off into the weeds here, but let me just say it this way. Here's what we know. We know there are angels. Yes. We know there are something called seraphim. Mm Mm-hmm. We know there is something called cherubim. We know that in reference to Lucifer, who was an angel, he's referred to as the light bearer, to his name means. He's also called the anointed cherub that covers at one point. So there are beings out there. Now, what Americans would do with this is they would just group them under one giant umbrella. Just call them angels. And call them angels. The problem with that, though, is... It may not be the right term. And also, we don't have the right mental image of angels. Probably correct, Jeremy. And so then we're thinking angels. In, we're thinking like Christmas tree right. topper. Because we don't understand that there may be many different types of non-humans yeah. in the heaven. Right. Maybe even pre the creation of earth, there may be many non-human beings. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you want, we can just lump them under angels, although that's going to be way imprecise language, but there's these angels or non-human beings out there. Mm -hmm. They are not like us. They're (laughs) angels or seraphim, they're cherubim. They're other beings. There's at least an archangel. Could we agree on that? Oh, absolutely. Michael, the archangel. So there are some hierarchies out there in Mm -hmm. the spirit world. There are some thrones and dominions and principalities Paul talked about. And he was really, I think, talking about maybe more of a satanic thing that would fights against us, a satanic hierarchy. Yeah. So we just kind of would default and say, then God also has some type of angelic, super beyond human. Right. Extraterrestrial means not of the earth. Mm-hmm. But that sounds like now you're imagine E.T. with a long neck and a round head and a long finger. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so you're not getting a right mental picture, but there are non-human beings that exists. Let's agree on that. Oh, absolutely. And actually, since you're talking about all this, it's interesting to note one of your most discussed sermons that you ever done, I guess a whole series of sermons was called Heavenly Host. And you really took apart all of these different classifications of biblical beings. Mm -hmm. 
as they are revealed through Maybe scripture. we should revisit that at Maybe some point. Maybe we should. Point, I, yeah. I think that they're on our website too if you wanted to go listen to them. But I think the response to that series was really telling with how little we really know. And how curious we are and to how know. how curious we are to what know. What exists beyond this, this material, realm. material realm that yeah. we operate in. But in Job, now to get back to the question, they're called sons of God. So again, what the modern versions are referring to them as angels, but they're called sons of God. So let me go back to the original question now. The Apostles' Creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Mm -hmm. So is he God's only son or not? Because you're seeing all this language of other being called sons of God. You're seeing Paul talk about believers as sons of God, daughters of God. So how is Christ distinguished from that? And so the Bible writers, like we quoted in John already, the Bible writers were very intentional Mm -hmm. to use this Greek word, monogenes. He is God's one and only son. Yeah. And they say that clearly calling out, he is a unique son of God. So when we as brothers and sisters in Christ say, hey, brother, hey, sister, and we think of Jesus, yes, he's our brother, he's our family member, but we all would admit he's not like us. Right. Unless you're raising the dead and walking on the water and claiming (laughs) to be the son of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, see, and this was the important thing we talked about Sunday. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, comma, our Lord. And I really focused the whole message on our Lord, because if you get that part right, I feel like the other parts will default align. Yeah. If you can understand, in the New Testament, they're calling Jesus Lord. I went to Peter to unpack Psalm 2. He quotes it in his Pentecost sermon. Right. And he says in going through the Psalm 2 text that, God has indeed sent his king to set things right. And his king was Jesus Christ. This Jesus you have crucified. God has made both Messiah and Lord. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're preaching just 40 days after the resurrection that Jesus is Lord. And we said Sunday, you know, we're studying the Apostles' Creed, which is three sections, a little over 100 words. It may be that the first Christian creed was simply these two words. Well, Mm. three in English, Jesus is Lord, two in Greek, but Jesus is Lord. Which, what an incredible statement. Well, listen, so they're putting you in the Colosseum with your wife and children, Jeremy, and they're saying, you know, bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. We'll let you out. Wow. Well, the Christians said, I'm sorry, Jesus is Lord. And that was actually not sorry. Jesus is Lord. And that was the creed that they died on. And they died to those words. Many people No, there were whole divisions of the Roman army that had converted to Christ. And before battles, they would make them bow to Caesar and offer sacrifice to idols and things. There are stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs and other places that talk about whole groups of people, whole families, whole divisions of soldiers being put to death because they would not bow the knee and say Caesar is Lord. In that first, second century world, they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He is our king. Well, that upset the earthly kings greatly. You remember how Herod felt when the wise men rode into town and the Magi said, where's the king? Oh, he had quite a meltdown. He had a meltdown (laughs) because he would not be threatened with another king. Yeah. And so he would send the swordsmen to Bethlehem, kill everybody if he had to. Well, in like fashion, the Neros of the world and et cetera made everyone pledge allegiance and sacrifice to me as God, et cetera. The early believers just wouldn't do it. They said, Jesus is Lord. And many of them died to the words of that creed. So what we did Sunday is we really focused on Jesus as Lord. And again, to call Jesus Lord, 
is to use the same language that's being used in the Old Testament now, because in the Old Testament, it says Yahweh is Lord. So when you're reading the Old Testament and it says, and the Lord did this, and the Lord did this, and the Lord did this. If you look up the word Lord in Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. So now in the New Testament, they're using the same word Lord for Jesus that they use for the Old Testament God, Yahweh. Jesus shares the Old Testament God's identity. The Father and Son are the same God, not separate gods. Mm -hmm. Marcion was wrong. They're not two gods, a good one and a bad one. There's only one God. And that God came to this earth in the form of Jesus Christ, God's one and only. Let me use these words you used earlier. God's unique son. Yeah, well, and I I assume assume none of our listeners have been virgin born. No. And all of these things that we could say about Jesus, people don't call them Lord. They don't die for it. I mean, they haven't risen from the dead. Jesus is uniquely God's son. Absolutely. Well, and when you look at the opening verses in the book of John, you find out that the word was with God from the very beginning. And then John goes on to define the word as being Jesus when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's just incredible to see that kind of language really accentuating his uniqueness. So you're saying John's theology wasn't confused at all. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word Jesus, reference to Jesus, was God. That's why John opens his biography of Jesus with this high theology that says, let me begin by introducing to you Jesus. He is God. Yeah. That's basically what he's saying. Or let me introduce to you God. He came in the form of a man you knew as Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus is God's unique son. His one and only son, as he says in verse 14. Exactly. So it's also true that we are sons of God, but we understand in a different sense. We're not uniquely God. Right. Both of these things can be true. Sure. Jesus can be the one and only unique deity son of God, and we can also be his children. So your boys. Yeah, I have two children. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. We're born of a union between you and your wife. Yeah. Now, you may decide not to have any more children by union with your wife mm-hmm. but you guys could come along here in a few years and say hey let's adopt a little girl yeah. we're two for two on boys but let's see if we can adopt a little girl now she would also be your child yeah but in a unique way a different way than the boys still very much my child and she would still be heir of one third of your estate yeah with the two boys she would be as much your daughter as they are your sons but in a different but by and unique adoption way. yeah but by adoption So let me read a couple of New Testament verses, which may give some really warm feelings to all of us Yeah, yeah. when you read this. So in Romans 4, it says, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Now, what this sets up in the New Testament is if you believe on Jesus by faith, you become the new Israel. Okay, that's what it's being set up. Then Galatians, the same Paul, though, writing to the Galatians says in 326, for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And maybe the more powerful verse is in Romans. Yeah, Romans 8 verses 14 through 15. It says this, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. 
and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we've not received the spirit of fear, the Bible says, but the spirit of adoption. Yeah, and now we have a father we can call out to. And so the metaphor we were using earlier with your own family just fits yeah. in a similar way now. I'm not biologically Jewish, but I'm considered Abraham's child by faith. Yeah. Because Abraham's the father of all those who believe. In a sense, he modeled faith for us. So, And what I love about these verses is that it's saying you have the right to call God your father. John echoes this language so strong. As many as believed on him, to them gave he the right mm-hmm. to become the sons of God. And so we're like, okay, if he's God's unique son and we're sons of God, how is it different? And the, really the Romans 8 passage to me explains it because it says by adoption. Yeah. Essentially, you're not the very... We're not an extension of God the same way that Jesus is. Correct. You're adopted as right. the family of God because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. God said, you take my son, I'm going to take you to be my son. Yeah. And I'm just going to make you part of my family and I'll give you all an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I'll make you again, kings and priests. So here we go right back to Genesis again. Yeah. I'll make you living icons. So you could say Jesus was a human version of God. He's God. in a man's body. And we learn so much about God by looking at Jesus Christ. This is what God wants us all to be. In the resurrection, he is the beginning of the new creation. He is what we are all going to be who've believed by faith. He's going to give us a new body as well through the resurrection and the promise of a new resurrected earth, hearkening back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again. And we're going to be restored as living. We're going to be everything God and created true humans to be. That's who Jesus is. He is God's unique son, his only son in that sense. Yeah. Our Lord, he is God. And again, you and I get to come in as sons of God by adoption because we put our faith in Jesus Christ so that he's not ashamed to call us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Wow. What a great discussion. I love talking about Jesus as the son. I think There's so much depth to these statements, and I'm so happy that we're studying it together. The end part of this clause, like you just mentioned, talks about Jesus being our Lord, and that was something that, again, you talked extensively about on Sunday. So if you'd like to kind of finish out this thought process, go back and listen to the sermon, because there's some really fantastic content from our Sunday morning sermon this past week. So if you go onto our website at cbc.family media, you'll be able to find all of our past sermons from this series, as well as all the other ones that we've done in recent years. You can also get all of our podcasts on any major provider. Just search for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and you'll be able to find and subscribe to all of our future episodes. Again, as you listen, we would love to hear feedback and we'd love to be able to respond to questions. We're getting questions all the time and we're working the content into our responses that we give in every single episode. So if you would, text us at 817-809-3040 so that we can take all of that input and then bring them back in weekly content as we present these Cornerstone Conversations.